0: You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 98.5.
1: We're
0: hey, I'm your host, Dr. Yami. I'm a board certified pediatrician, certified health and wellness coach, author, and speaker.
1: We're having broccoli.
2: If you do this, and you make this your core philosophy, you can radically transform your health. And this could be you as a vegan, whole food plant-based, it could be paleo, it could be anything. Could be the standard American diet. There's one golden rule that transforms your gut, tor- transforms your health. And that is so simple. Diversity of plants.
0: Hello, hello, veggie lovers. Welcome back to Veggie Doctor Radio and another amazing episode with Dr. Will Bolsowitz. He is awesome. You are going to love him. I love him. I can't wait to learn more from him. This episode is super long. I was going to break it up into two episodes, but then I thought, nope, let's just add it on as a bonus episode and you're going to have to listen to the whole thing. But even then there were like, let's see, at least 12 questions that I did not ask him. So he's definitely agreed to come back on the show so that I can ask him even more in-depth, detailed questions about gut health. But before I talk more about Dr. Will and his new book, I want you to know about the salad challenge. If you took part in my salad challenge two years ago, well, guess what? It's back and it's going to be even better this time because we're going to extend it. And Dr. Will is going to participate, including the plant chicks as well. It's going to be so fun. We're going to have giveaways and it's just going to be a blast. If you want to sign up for the salad challenge to be part of the group that gets all the special recipes and the emails and everything, go to dryami.com forward slash salad challenge. S-A-L-A-D-C-H-A-L-L-E-N-G-E. It starts Monday, May the 18th. So the sooner you sign up, the better. You also get a little fun PDF. That helps you build salads with different categories. So definitely sign up. You can also sign up for my newsletter if you don't want to participate in the salad challenge because you hate salads. I'm just kidding. Who hates salads? You can't hate salads. Salads are amazing. And you know what makes them even more amazing is putting yummy things in them. This is not just like lettuce and tomatoes. Okay. These salads are amazing. At one point when we were doing the salad challenge, Alejandra was weighing all my salads. We were calling them salad babies because we were weighing them on the baby scale. And believe me, they were hearty. They filled me up. I was very satisfied. But if you don't want to be in the salad challenge, you can join my newsletter by texting the word Fiber, F-I-B-E-R, to 66866. And just put my usual plug for my book. Thank you so much for all of you guys who have bought it and read it. If you had it haven't already bought it. You can find it on all the major online booksellers. It is now available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. Thank you because it took forever to get that audiobook finally uploaded and ready to go on Audible, which I know most people use Audible. So please, if you haven't already, check it out. I think you'll like it. And thank you, all of you that have read it and reviewed it. If you've read it, and you haven't already reviewed it on Amazon, if you could please take a few minutes to do that, I so would appreciate you for real. Every time I get a new review, I get super excited. So thank you. Speaking of reviews, this one is a five-star review by Jill R. Mitchener. She titles it, Great Book for Parents and Kids. Jill says, I started reading this book to help my son. Little did I know I would relate to the author's personal account of her own childhood and learn so much about myself along the way. The background and information is so helpful to learn about our own food biases and then help transform our thinking about food and nutrition. Such a good book. Jill, thank you so much. I appreciate that. And I hope that it continues to help you and how you feed your son. Just a quick reminder that the information on this podcast is for informational educational purposes only. It's not meant to replace careful evaluation and treatment. If you have concern about you or your child's eating or your health, please consult a medical professional. So, Dr. Will, Dr. Will Bolsowitz, MD, MSCI, is a gastroenterologist, internationally recognized gut health expert, and the author of the book Fiber Fueled. He completed a bachelor's degree from Vanderbilt University, a medical degree from Georgetown University and a master's in clinical investigation from Northwestern University. Bolsowitz was also the chief medical resident at Northwestern and the chief gastroenterology fellow at UNC and received the highest award given by both his residency and fellowship. He also completed an epidemiology fellowship at UNC's prestigious Gilling School of Global Public Health. Wow. Smart dude obviously a very hard worker, very dedicated. His book is out now. It is called Fiber Fueled. It's amazing. You need to get your hands on this book. Even if you don't suffer from gut issues, if you think that, you know, everything goes great. I don't really suffer from gut issues anymore. This book was so helpful. I got so many tips. I learned so much Which we will be covering in this podcast things that I was surprised about that I didn't know. Wow. I am so glad that Dr. Will wrote this book. I hope that you love this episode, that you go out and buy his book right away, and you get to hear more from him in the salad challenge. So don't forget dryami.com forward slash salad challenge begins May the 18th. Hop on board. Eat salads with us. It's going to be so fun. Are you ready to hear from Dr. Will? All right, let's do it. Dr. B, thank you so much for joining me on Veggie Doctor Radio today.
2: Oh my gosh, Dr. Yami, thank you so much for having me on. It's all my pleasure. So, this is great. So cool to connect.
0: Well, I feel so privileged. One of the best things I think about being a podcast host is I get to read books before they're released. Hey. Honestly, that makes me feel like super special because I love reading and I love learning. And I just have to say, your book is incredible. And you know, I do a lot of reading on nutrition. I love learning about the gut microbiome, but some of the things I read in your book just blew my mind. So things that I definitely did not know before, which is really fun for me. So thank you so much for taking the time to write this book.
2: That's, I mean, that's a high honor coming from you. (laughs) That's amazing, No, I love that. And you know, all I can say is this, this book was a pure project of passion. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I don't look at this as a financial transaction by any means, trust me, like we're, I'm not gonna be paying off my educational debt with this book, I wish I was. But you know, at the end of the day, what this is, is when you feel compelled to do something, when you feel like your life is being like pulled in a certain direction and you just have no choice but to take it on and do it. And that's kind of where I was. I felt like there was this message that needed to get out. It's something that had worked in my own life. I, I lost 50 pounds following the ideas in this book. And I had brought this into my clinic and healed my patients. And you know, you, you reach a certain point where it's like, look, I can... I can take care of hundreds or thousands of patients, but then the message is so like quiet and it's like a whimper when it should be a roar, it should be powerful. And so this book is me trying to spread the word on ideas and topics that I'm so passionate about because I truly think it can help people and transform their lives.
0: Yeah. No, I can definitely tell when I was reading this book, and that's what I love the most about books like this is that. Authors are willing to be genuine and authentic and talk about their own transformation and their own experiences. And that's where I want to start. So, obviously, you have a lot of knowledge and now you have a lot of experience in eating in a way that supports your health and well being, but you weren't always like that. So, you had a very standard American diet, even through residency. Do you think that most doctors, even like super-duper smart ones, because we have a lot of smart doctors that give us a lot of information, do you think that a lot of doctors eat this way, eat the standard American diet, and never make the connection between their food and their well-being?
2: The number one cause of death among cardiologists is heart disease. I don't think that most doctors are making this connection and it's not casting stones at them. It's a product of our educational system, that same educational system that you and I were brought up in. And we worked very hard and dedicated, you know, countless hours, countless weekends and nights to. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the issue is you have to go back to the organization of, of medical education in the United States, which is that, we found ways to take on disease states Mm -hmm. with pills and procedures. And that was such a novel and powerful idea 50 years ago. And so we invested heavily into that idea of, oh my gosh, if you have this condition, we could potentially reverse it with this pill or procedure, right? And now we sit here and it's 2020 and we realize you're not truly reversing that disease, You're patching it up.
0: Exactly. And
2: it's an artificial, it's an artificial sense of accomplishment. And, you know, I sit here and I say, now, everything that I know is showing me that if you really want to truly reverse disease, you have to go to the root of the disease. And the root of the disease is the diet and the lifestyle. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: It's the way that we live in the United States. I was not taught that I'm a doctor just like you, but I'm also a human being just like you. And we are vulnerable to the same mistakes or the same patterns. And, you know, I was raised eating the standard American diet. I think many kids who grew up in the 80s, that's the way that we ate. And I never thought that it was a problem. I was always skinny. I was able to control my weight. I was a great athlete in high school. And, you know, if you don't feel like there's anything wrong with it, I mean, it's not like I sit there and thought that having a cheesesteak was good for me, you know? I never thought that a hot dog was good for me, but maybe I didn't think that there was that much of a problem either Mm -hmm. until you get to a point in your life where it comes to a head where it's like, look, I feel horrible. I'm exhausted. I've gained 50 pounds. My blood pressure is up and I have anxiety and I need a solution. And for me as a doctor, I couldn't find a real solution until I found this until I found the power of a plant-based diet. And at the end of the day, and I would imagine you're the same as me, I'm a scientist. Like I'm a science guy. If the science is not there, then I can't accept it. right? If a person comes forward with a fantastic study showing that people live longer and are healthier because they eat meat, I would acknowledge it. But that study doesn't exist. That study doesn't exist. Instead, what we have is we have study after study after study showing us the powerful of a plant-based diet, the power of a plant-based diet. And when I discovered that, I found these studies. I was shocked that I hadn't heard anything about this in my medical education.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. And again, I lost the 50 pounds. I reversed the blood pressure issue. I got rid of my anxiety problem. I got my energy back. Writing this book, exemplifies everything that I've I'm made capable of by eating a plant-based diet. I'm 40 years old. I'm a dad. I got kids. I invest my time into my family. I'm not cutting that. And I wrote this book at five in the morning over the course of a year because I felt compelled to share the story with people and the clarity and the focus and the, the neuroplasticity that I needed to make this book possible was because I'm actually am living what I'm telling you in the book. I'm I'm fueled by fiber, I'm fueled by plants.
0: I love it. No, and that's so many good points there. I bring that up and the reason I asked that question is because I think we have so many wonderful, compassionate, loving doctors that we see and we work with. And it, it's not that they aren't well meaning, you know?
1: Right.
0: But like you said, it is the nature of our education and what we are trained to focus on what we are trained to pay attention to, which is I treat disease with medications or surgery or some some kind of band aid. I don't really go back a few steps and treat the root causes, and so it's not necessarily the fault of doctors. But I like to point that out because I think a lot of uh, a lot of listeners might be feeling like when they go to their doctor, they don't get supported in this way, especially in specialties like maybe rheumatology, where there's autoimmune conditions, where there's conditions where they're flat out told by their physician, your diet has nothing to do with this, but intuitively people kind of know that maybe it does, but it might give them an excuse to just keep, you know, doing the same thing. So I think it's important for people to know. Even though there's lots of great, fantastic, loving, compassionate, smart, super brilliant, research-based doctors out there, probably the majority have not made the connection between what we eat and the diseases that we have, or just even our well-being, like you said, just feeling better.
1: So, yeah, and I think,
2: you know, part uh, of the issue, Dr. Yami, is that so it's not a part of medical education, right, on any level. And also our system does not support it. Doctors are busy people. There are no doctors who have a casual lifestyle or very few. The vast majority are working really, really hard, but we're forced to work within the constructs of the system.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. I'm a full-time gastroenterologist, like writing books and having an Instagram account is something that I do at night. All right, I'm a full-time gastroenterologist and many doctors in my field would look at what I do and say, why would you do that? Because you're costing yourself money. To have a conversation about nutrition, a a high quality conversation, it's not five minutes. Like it really takes 15 or 20 minutes to have an even decent conversation about nutrition. And the problem is that our system has not decided to support that. There is actually no way for a doctor to bill for that conversation. So most doctors would say, well, I could see another patient in that amount of time. Mm -hmm. So why would I do that? And they're not being selfish. It's just that the system at the end of the day, like, you know, people need to understand doctors these days, they're not, it's not about, you know, what time you can get to the golf course. I, I haven't played golf in like, I don't know, 20 years. It's not about, you know, driving the nicest car. My car has well over a hundred thousand miles on it. Like doctors these days are having to deal with the constraints of the healthcare system, which put, which is putting a lot of pressure on them. It's asking for more efficiency. It's asking you to see more, to see as many patients as possible, spend as little time with your patient as possible, and that's literally just to keep to pay the bills and keep the lights on. So, and that's that's the reality of where we live these days. So it's like you said, the doctors are not the enemy in trying to hurt people. That's for sure. I mean, the entire conspiracy theory that sometimes I hear that doctors want people to be sick is absurd. If we wanted to make money off of people's illness, I would go into banking. <laughs> That's the bottom line. And so it's, it's, it's um, I think the doctors all, they all mean well, but if you don't teach them and you don't encourage them and you don't support them, then what you're going to find is the vast majority are not going to do this. Instead, you're just going to find a couple of people like me who feel so strongly with every single fabric in my body that this needs to be discussed, that I just don't care how the finances work out. I'm going to do it.
0: Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And that's just, I can't change that. That's who I am.
0: Yeah. It's because you have that calling within you, something stronger that's pushing you to do something beyond just a traditional, but it's true. I feel like among the medical profession, we really spend a lot of time seeing patients and charting. And a lot of doctors spend their extra time. They don't have time for social media. They're spending hours outside of the office, just finishing their charts and, Really depressed and stressed out about it. So yeah. it's a, it's kind of a really hard time in medicine yeah. right now. So you met your future wife and realized that she ate differently from you at the beginning of this journey. And it kind of piqued your interest. So I'm curious about, cause you talk about in your book, how you realize she ate different and you were kind of curious about it. But then you decided you wanted to try it out, but you didn't really tell anybody about it. So I want to know no. more about that and why you, why did you do it in secret?
1: Well,
2: um, I had literally never, uh, as far as I can recall, I had never been around anyone who was vegan or a vegetarian until I met my wife. And we would go on a date to a nice restaurant and you could get literally anything. And to me, what sounded good at that time was a ribeye. And she would ask the the waiter, hey, I know it's not on the menu, but could you make me a a plate full of plants? Like have the chef just put a bunch of sides of plants together. And I saw this and I was like, gosh, she can eat without restriction. Like she's eating food. She's not holding back at all. She looks amazing. And here I am. And at this point in my life, I'm like smashing, you know, 30 minute workouts, six days a week, and then jumping in the pool to swim a hundred laps or on the treadmill for a five to 10 K. And I'm doing that six days a week and I can't lose weight. And so it opened up my mind to the possibility. Maybe it is my diet. You know, I've, I've had this diet my entire life. I was raised on it. This is the way we eat as a family, but maybe it's holding me back. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And so it created this possibility and I just wanted to try. But I didn't want any pressure. I didn't want it to be like, hey, I'm doing this for you. Like, we were just going on some dates, right? We were just getting to know each other. I didn't know she would turn into my wife. I just wanted to try this out. And I I started with a really simple, small substitution. You know, for me, this entire journey, it was a journey. It was not a decision and then a cannonball into the pool. And so I started with making a smoothie for dinner, bananas, berries, greens. That's pretty much what it was, but it would be like 35 ounces. And um, when I did that, I noticed instantly no food hangover, much better energy levels. My skin started to change. My hair got thicker. My nails started to change. My energy levels at work were better. I wasn't so exhausted when I got home. I wasn't needing Red Bull to get me through the day. Um, all these things started to happen with that one small change, making that substitution at dinnertime. And so it galvanized this idea for me. And I started to build up momentum from a health habit perspective where I would start making small substitutions. Drop the soda, put in water or some kombucha. All right, little substitutions like this or looking for the opportunity to get more plants into my diet started to really gain momentum for me. And I got to this place where, and this was over the course of years where I was a pescatarian. So I was still eating fish, eggs, and dairy. And I was like, you know what? I'm just, I think I'm just going to try it, see what happens. And so I went all in completely whole food plant-based and next thing i knew i was back to my high school weight the 50 pounds that i gained were totally gone had vanished and it was effortless like i went from having to do six workouts a week trying to lose weight and still being unsuccessful to now i'm a dad i like drive a minivan <laughs> and i feel like i'm in the best shape of my life as i moved you know into being 40 compared to being exhausted and feeling out of shape and horrible at 30. It's like amazing how powerful it is. And I just, I couldn't, it wasn't enough for me to be the only one to experience this benefit. And so I had to bring it into my clinic. And then uh, again, as I saw the health transformations that were occurring before my eyes, you know, not only myself, but my patients, I just felt like this message needs to be out there and, you know, that's where I started my Instagram account with zero expectations. I'm like, I am not, I mean, I don't know if people would realize or understand this. Maybe you look at my Instagram account and you think I love social media. I really don't. I don't love it at all. But I felt like I needed to get this out there and was compelled to share. And then things just happened.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's an incredible story. Do you think that It's more common for men to not really consider the diet and just focus more on exercise. Cause I feel like I hear that from guys a lot. Like maybe they gain a few pounds or they, you know, they start feeling sluggish and they're like, oh, I just need to exercise more. I'm not really going to change my diet. Have you experienced that too? That men might be a little bit more resistant to considering changes in their diet?
2: I think that we have allowed certain dietary patterns to be marketed as masculine Mm
1: -hmm.
2: and other dietary patterns to be marketed as uh, almost emasculating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it becomes human nature to feel a certain way about your food in that regard. And people are eating food that they love. Let's not make any mistake about that. People are eating food that they enjoy and I would argue are even potentially addicted to. Yeah. And so to make a change is unsettling on a number of different levels. What are my friends going to say? What am I going to do when I'm out in public? Um, you know, what if I don't like the food? How am I going to cook it? I've never had that kind of food before. I don't even know what to make.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And these are many of the questions that people ask me when I have these conversations in the clinic and the the same feelings that I was having in and kind of going through this process. And I get it. Like, you know, many guys, it's like, you hope that you can exercise your way out of it, but you can't. Yeah. There's an attitude that's like, I exercise so that I can eat what I want. Mm -hmm. You can do that but you'll never experience the way that your body would feel if you were optimally nourished, which is an amazing feeling. Yeah. And you know, the important thing I think is being willing and open enough to try
0: Mm -hmm.
2: because when you do, you're going to see what you're capable of and be blown away by the difference.
0: Yeah. And I think just like what you were saying is exploring it with an attitude of curiosity and experimentation rather than a feeling of obligation or deprivation because i think that that can happen sometimes too especially with different personality types where some people if they're perfectionistic it has to be all or nothing and if it doesn't work for a week then i'm never going to you know do it again but what you're saying is that it took you several years from beginning to end from being in the standard american diet to being completely plant-based,
2: right? 100%. And I think that we're all on this journey in our own unique way. And I, I think a big part of what my book is about is about meeting where you are.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Because the average person in the United States right now, the standard American diet, the average person in the United States is 10% plant-based.
1: Mm.
2: And they're getting 30% of their calories from meat, dairy, and eggs. That means that they, they are three times more animal product-based than they are plant-based. And they're getting 60% of their diet from processed foods, which are, you know, I mean, there's just nothing redeeming about processed foods from a health perspective, even if you are vegan, honestly. Mm -hmm. So from my perspective, it's about meeting you where you are. This is not an all or nothing phenomenon. This is a journey. I'm trying to empower people with the tools to find a lifestyle that heals.
1: Mm -hmm
2: where you are literally just living. like You are just living. You are being your best self. You are having a great time at it. You enjoy the food that you eat. You enjoy your lifestyle. It's addictive, all of it. And in that process, you're actually healing your body. You're giving yourself the medicine that it needs to be as strong as it possibly can. You are preventing disease. You are reversing disease. And that, to me, is what this is really all about, is meeting people where they are, celebrating progress, progress over perfection, not saying that you need to be this or you need to be that. You're allowed to be whoever you want to be, but I want to show you the path to better health because I truly believe that if you follow this path with me, you're going to be in such a better place. And as you age, you're going to be reaping the rewards of this of this approach.
0: Oh, I love it. So awesome. All right. Well, let's get into some of my burning questions. I have, I have way too many. I hope you have a few days.
2: (laughs) I'm ready. (laughs) Let's roll. Okay.
0: So one of the things that, I talk a lot about because I'm a pediatrician is constipation. So constipation, as you know, being a GI doctor and as I know being a pediatrician is really common in the United States. And so we talk about, you know, increasing fiber and getting off milk and those kinds of things. But have you encountered people that are actually eating a plant-based diet but still suffer from constipation and what factors might contribute to this? And what steps can they take to try to resolve that issue?
2: So I am, and I continue to be shocked by the burden of constipation in the United States. And it's amazing how powerful it can be. Mm -hmm. Um, Let me tell you, the number one cause of gas and bloating that I see in my clinic by far is constipation. The number one cause of gas and bloating. Yes, it can present where you are straining to have a bowel movement and struggling to have a bowel movement or go several days at a time without a bowel movement. Constipation can also present with nausea, the rejection of food, the loss of appetite. I've seen it present with acid reflux. It's quite common for me to have a patient come in and say, Doc, I'm having acid reflux, nausea, not really hungry, a lot of gas and bloating. I already know. I already know what it is. And many times, they'll tell me that they're pooping every single day. Mm-hmm. Or in some cases, they're having diarrhea. And it's quite fascinating. Most people don't realize you could poop every single day and be completely constipated. And that's because you're not really evacuating. You could have diarrhea. And the reason why you're having diarrhea is because you actually have stool that's backed up. And the only thing they can get through is the liquid. And we call that overflow. So there are all these different ways that constipation can present. What's causing our constipation in the United States? I honestly think that it's alteration and changes to the gut microbiome. And that's because our gut microbiome is deeply intertwined with our biorhythm. In fact, our gut microbiome is deeply intertwined with 90% of the serotonin in the body. You'll find that 90% of serotonin, which is the heavy hormone, right? It helps us in terms of our mood. It helps us in terms of our mental clarity, our energy levels. 90% of serotonin is actually produced in the gut. And the reason why is because that's the rhythm. That sets the rhythm for motility of the gut. And that's intertwined again with our gut microbiome. I think that this is where most of this is coming from. Um, let me give you an example. There's, there are studies that have come out recently indicating that having a history of disordered eating, anorexia or bulimia, is strongly associated with the development of constipation later in life. Most people don't realize how common these conditions are. They're incredibly common. And I feel like our culture is making them even more
0: common. Oh yeah. That's one of my bags right there is uh, disordered eating. So yes, I'm with you on that one.
2: So let's talk about that then. Cause I, I don't know how you feel about this, but I feel like the last 20 years, America has been told, that their food is hurting them.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: That there are these toxins, phytates, lectins, go down the line, oxalates, uh, gluten. That there are these toxins. That there are these food monsters: carbs, soy, you know, um, wheat, that are destroying your health. And you know what we get is we get all of these fad diets with a laundry list that says you can't have a relationship with this food, you gotta break up with it. And is it really that surprising that we develop an unhealthy relationship with our food
1: Mm -hmm.
2: that can be anything on the spectrum from mild, where it's like the idea of eating the food is a little bit scary and upsetting to you, all the way up through orthorexia and into anorexia and bulimia and these conditions, You know, I see them as an adult, Dr. Yami, and like you see these in your kids. And you and I, I'm sure you would agree, it's a lifelong problem once they develop this. It never goes away. Yeah. Are you seeing a lot of these issues? Tell us more from your perspective about what you're seeing.
0: Yeah. So it starts very early. And, you know, there's lots of things that can trigger it. But I think one of the main things is, dieting. So just wanting to uh, restrict calories to lose weight, but absolutely these orthorexic tendencies, they come out any with, with any dieter because a dieter, their first mentality is, okay, what do I need to cut out? Start doing research. You just go on some social media. It's really fast. Oh, okay. Well, the problem is definitely carbs. You just right. need to stop eating all carbs and that's going to solve right. your problems for life. You know, right. um, But I agree with you that once you start It becomes a habit and it becomes such an ingrained habit that it can last for decades and decades and decades. I know this from a personal standpoint, but I also see it in patients and clients that I work with because I'm also a a health and wellness coach. So, yeah, I mean, absolutely, especially if people are having anorexia where they're not eating for prolonged periods of time or bulimia where they're recurrently vomiting, I can see how that's definitely going to impact. Your gut health, but what what do you think the reason is? Is that when people have had a history of this, that it causes a dysregulation in their gut microbiome?
2: So when I was at the University of North Carolina, they actually have one of the top um, disordered eating clinics in the entire country, and we used to actually have a collaborative relationship. Us, the GI doctors, mm-hmm. would sit down in a room with them, and and we would have conversations about patients because we shared so many patients together mm-hmm. from their disordered eating clinic to our gastroenterology practices or clinics that we it, it made sense for us to just basically be running the list uh, you know every other week and just let's just run through the list and let's talk about all of our patients together. And what was interesting is that they, they actually ha- did the study looking at the gut microbiome and found that there are alterations and damage to the gut microbiome that occur as a result of having a disordered relationship with your food.
1: Hmm.
2: And so it creates this challenging scenario where we are trying to repair the relationship with the food, but now the person is suffering with digestive distress. It gets a lot harder to get people to feel good about bringing food back into their life when they're not feeling well, when it causes gas, bloating, discomfort, diarrhea, constipation. You know, all of that creates challenges. And that's a big part of what my book is about, chapter five. Mm -hmm. Chapter five is, you know, perhaps what I would describe as the biggest contribution of the book, and I know this is the chapter that Garth Davis loved the most, talking about food sensitivities and how to navigate them. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Because I want people to understand that whether you are vegan or you are not vegan, the person who needs this book the most is the person who is also going to struggle the most to introduce a plant-based diet.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Because that person is suffering because of damage to their gut. Mm -hmm. And the path to healing the gut is actually not through restriction. Your gut gets weaker when you do that. The path to healing the gut is actually through introduction and abundance and diversity. And so I want to create an understanding for people about what is actually happening with their body so they know how to navigate that and don't have to live in fear of their food and develop this sort of disorder thought pattern.
0: Yeah, that's, that's just beautiful. I love that. The path to healing the gut is through introduction, abundance, and variety. That's a quotable right there. (laughs) I love it. That's great. So, you know, so basically what you're saying is when we start eliminating entire groups of whole plant foods that give us all this great fiber that we're going to talk more about, when we do that, when we eliminate it, it can dysregulate our gut microbiome. So, you know, that makes a lot of sense. But one of the things I was curious about, and I think you may have touched upon it just a little bit, but I want to hear your full thoughts on this, if there's any research on this. There's a trend now towards prolonged fasting. So people are, you know, getting into the intermittent intermittent fasting and, you know, I think it's healthy definitely to have periods of fasting for our gut. We know for our brain health, all that kind of stuff, lots of benefits, but people are starting to push the envelope further and further. One, two, three day water only fasts. Can this ro- routine fasting periods, can that affect our bacteria, like essentially, if we don't feed them for several days, are we killing off entire colonies of good bacteria? Do you know about that? What can happen in that situation? Yes.
2: Yeah, so the so the answer to this question is that I think that there so there are benefits to fasting. Fasting can be good for the gut at a certain level. It's good for the metabolism. It's good for, for insulin sensitivity. It's good in terms of weight loss. All right. Um, It's good for mental clarity, but like exercise, there is a threshold that exists where you're taking it too far and you actually start to injure yourself in the process. And so first and foremost, we were just talking about disordered eating. If you have a history of disordered eating, I would strongly recommend against introducing any sort of fasting routine.
0: Thank you. Because I think it
2: it preys upon, I think it preys upon those vulnerabilities. And the benefits are not so great that you're going to miss them. Yeah. Right. If you have a history of disordered eating, your emphasis needs to be on introduction of foods, on abundance and a variety. That is way more powerful than any fasting routine. Right. Fasting is such a small player by comparison. When people take fasting, and they start, they like double, triple, quadruple down on this. They're taking the fad, the trends, the marketing, and they're running with it so hard that they can actually hurt themselves. Yeah. And in the gut, there's this part of our, our body that's called the mucus layer, right? And the mucus layer exists as this sort of barrier between our gut microbiome and the rest of our body where we, we would call it the epithelial layer, okay? So this is sort of like this little buffer that exists, separating our gut microbiome from the rest of our body, the wall of the colon, the wall of the intestines. And the mucus layer can change and, it, and, it, and be altered by our dietary choices. And one of the things that happens is when you start to fast, there are microbes that exist that thrive on consumption of the mucus layer. Mm. And when this occurs, you will see thinning of the mucus layer. And at some point, it crosses the line to becoming actually harmful, okay? So fasting from a gut perspective is nice for a short reset. To me, something on the spectrum of 12 to maybe 16 hours, but when people are extending this and doing two-day, three-day, four-day fasts, you should not expect that you're going to emerge from this and have a healthier gut than when you started. I'm not really expecting that. And I think you're pushing it too far. And I think that really what you need to do is take a step back, and let's look at the broader picture. Fasting is a tool. It's important. It's not the most important tool. It's not worth double and tripling down. What about sleep? What about exercise? What about meditation? And most importantly, what about your diet? Let's start with the fundamentals Fasting can be one of the tools in your toolkit, but let's not put all your eggs in that one basket and then do it to the point that you actually hurt yourself. Let's take some of that energy, that focus that you have, which is a beautiful and powerful thing that I want to tap into. And let's tap into that energy and let's redirect it to some of these other opportunities. Let's, let's try to work on the diet a little bit. Let's see what we can do from an exercise perspective. Let's get some sleep. Yeah. Let's get back to the basics.
0: Wow. Radical thinking, right? (laughs) That, that was amazing. Thank you. That answered my question so well. And it was kind of something that I was suspecting because as everything in life, there's a lot of things that I've experienced myself. And the only way I can teach other people is because I've been down that road. So it's kind of what I suspected with these prolonged fasts. So thank you for that. All right. Well, let's talk about dysbiosis. What does that mean? And why do we need to know what that means?
2: So dysbiosis is, you know, let's start with this quick little introduction to the gut microbiome, gut microbiome, one-on-one, one-on-one. We are these big, strong humans, but we are not alone. From the top of my head, the tip of my toes, I am covered on all external surfaces with living microorganisms that you can't physically see right now, but they're there. And they are most concentrated by far inside of our gut, specifically the large intestine, the colon. These microorganisms are numbered on the trillions, like numbers that are hard for us to fathom, a lot more than billions. Take all the stars in our universe, in the Milky Way, take all of them. You need 100 Milky Ways to equal the number of microbes that I or you, Dr. Yami, have as a part of your body. All right, and they are incredibly powerful. They've been a part of your life since the day that you were born, of my life since the day that I was born, of human history since the very beginning. It's a part of our evolution. They're a part of our biology. They're far more than our digestion. They are connected to our immune system, which is particularly relevant right now, our metabolism, our mood, the way we think, the balance of our hormones, and even the way that we express our genes, which is incredibly powerful if you think about that. Like, if you could change the way that someone expresses their genes, that's, whoa, powerful. All right, so that is the microbiome. And the question is what is dysbiosis? The microbiome lives in harmony and balance. That's the way that we want it to be. It's conceptually similar to the Amazon rainforest. Imagine this rainforest. It's got all of these trees and plants and lizards, snakes, bugs, furry creatures. And they're all living there. And there's a balance that exists. And they make each other better because they're all there in balance and in harmony. Right. And when we destroy species, when we destroy trees, we lose stability within that forest. The forest is not as strong anymore. It's far more vulnerable. And then it starts to cave to that pressure and it starts to fall apart. That's what happens in the Amazon rainforest. The Amazon rainforest is an ecosystem. Our gut microbiome is an ecosystem. It's hard to imagine because you can't see it, but it's just as much of an ecosystem as the Amazon rainforest. So the same rules. actually completely true. It's about harmony. It's about balance. And when I'm saying that, what I'm referring to is the word eubiosis, E-U-biosis. The opposite of eubiosis is dysbiosis. Dysbiosis is when you lose harmony, when you lose balance, less good guys, more bad guys, Loss of biodiversity, less species of bacteria living inside of you. Species and diversity is very important. And when that happens, you are triggering a mechanism where the lining of your intestine starts to erode. You get what's called leaky gut or increased intestinal permeability. And that happens because there's breakdown of these cells called the tight junctions, that holds the gut wall together. They break down and open up. And when they open up, you're basically creating the opportunity for stuff to sneak out, leak out of the gut that's not supposed to be leaking out. What happens? What's leaking out? The word is bacterial endotoxin. And bacterial endotoxin is associated with inflammation, inflammation that could be mild, chronic, that could cause Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or heart disease or cancer or that inflammation could be severe, acute, powerful, and it could cause you to go into septic shock, which is what we are seeing with some of these people who are having COVID-19 virus right now, Mm -hmm. is that they get so overwhelmingly sick that their immune system actually becomes the enemy and it can cause their body to completely fall apart. Okay. So the bottom line is that dysbiosis is the loss of balance of the gut microbes, and when that occurs, it's been very strongly associated with disease, disease of the gut like IBS or acid reflux, or, or even autoimmune conditions like Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, allergic issues, asthma, seasonal allergies, um, sinus issues, neurologic issues are associated with dysbiosis. Anxiety, depression, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, ADD, autism, um, hormonal problems, and we can talk about any of these if you want. Hormonal issues like end, uh, endometriosis or polycystic ovary syndrome, and metabolic issues, type two diabetes, um, obesity. You know, you look at the emerging list of 21st century problems, and you see that. We go down this list and virtually all of them have been associated with alteration or changes to the gut microbiome, dysbiosis, and now it starts to make sense. A major part of the reason, not the only reason, but a major part of the reason why we are having such health problems is because we are not taking care of our gut and we are allowing dysbiosis to set in and when that happens, disease shows up.
0: Wow. So the bottom line is we are more microbe than we are human. We have more cells in us that are actually not from us. They're microorganisms and they live in a delicate balance inside of our gut, on our skin, everywhere. And when that gets out of balance, that's when we start having an array, a multitude Of different problems, which for a lot of people, that's really hard to grasp and understand because we don't see these things. You know, we don't, we don't see these microorganisms. It just, it, it's, it's kind of mind blowing, you know, like it's kind of mind blowing that you can have bacteria and fungi and all kinds of things inside your gut that actually help you and help you feel better or can hurt you and cause problems. Since Well, let's, let me start first with the question, because I know that this can go on for a lot of different things, but so we know that we don't want to have dysbiosis because that can cause a leaky gut and then we can start having all kinds of problems from that. But what is the best way to support eubiosis?
2: Well, um, you know, that is really what fiber Fueled the book is all about. And if we want to make it super simple, here's what I would say. Our gut microbes, the healthy ones, the ones that we want to support, they love fiber. That's what they eat. The fiber passes all the way through 15 to 20 feet of intestine before it gets down to the colon where these microbes live, and then they feast, and they get powerful, stronger, and then they reward you by releasing short-chain fatty acids. Fiber is the foundation of gut health. And the reason why I had to name the book Fiber Fueled and couldn't say something like plant-based gut health or whatever you want to call it it had to be about fiber because we have a critical deficiency in our culture. 97% of people are not getting the minimal amount of fiber in their daily diet. If we want a healthy gut, we need to restore that gut and support it with the food, the nourishment that it thrives off of, which is fiber.
0: I love it. See, I just, I couldn't go much longer without asking you to talk about fiber because, you know, fiber is my favorite F word and you're wearing a shirt that says fiber. Does your shirt say anything else under fiber? What else Uh, does it say? Yeah,
2: it does actually. It says make fiber, make pooping great again.
0: I love it. Yeah. See you, uh, it's (laughs) so, so cute. Okay, so we know that in order to support eubiosis, we need to eat more fiber, which we'll talk more about that in a second. But let's back up. And because we're in currently the current events are that we're in this covid-19 pandemic. Can you explain a little bit more about how the health of our gut is related to our immune system? You talked about the inflammation, but can yeah. you explain a little bit more so that people understand why that this is important for us to be able to fight off infections?
2: Gut health has never been as important as it is right now. It's always important. This is, this is you know, all health starts in the gut. But to, if you think about how do we make our immune system as healthy as humanly possible, Shocking, it's not with supplements. It's not with supplements. The key is the connection between the gut and the immune system. This epithelial layer, which is that single layer of cells where the leaky gut occurs, and that is the lining of the colon. Let's zoom in on that for a moment, and what you're gonna see with this epithelial layer is on one side is your gut microbiome, and on the other side is 70% of your immune system.
1: 70%,
2: the majority of your immune system is sitting there right next to the gut microbiome. And they are completely intertwined. You cannot separate the two. The reason that we see that gut microbiome is altered with dysbiosis in all cases of allergic and autoimmune diseases is that you can't separate the two. If you damage the gut, you are damaging the immune system. But the opposite is also true. If you can optimize the gut, you are optimizing the immune system. A healthy gut programs the immune system to be exactly what you want it in this infection. And let me just be clear for everyone listening at home, what do you want? The answer is not more. You definitely don't want less, but the answer is not more immune system because a more immune system is what rolls out of control and can actually become your enemy when you get an infection like this, The people who end up in the hospital on a ventilator develop a condition called acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS. ARDS is actually caused by your immune system in response to the infection. It's not the direct cause of the infection. And it causes the lungs to basically fail and then you have to be on a ventilator. What we want is we want precision. We want targeted. We wanna get the right soldiers on the battlefield fighting this virus, but then the rest of the immune system we wanted to just be like, whoa, guys, you guys chill out. You stay on the sideline. This is not your fight. Okay. We don't need you, you know, dropping bombs everywhere and blowing everything up. We need you to just chill out. And that is exactly what happens with a high fiber diet. There was a study that was done where they looked at a high fiber diet versus a low fiber diet. And by the way, this is in an animal model. And by no means am I saying that I love animal research, just to be completely clear. I'm just sharing with you what the study showed. And high fiber diet versus a low fiber diet among mice that were infected with influenza, respiratory virus. And the, the study researchers were shocked when the animals that were eating a high fiber diet lived longer with less symptoms and objectively had better function of their lungs. And so the researchers said, well, why? That, that totally surprised us. What is it? And here's what they found. By consuming fiber, the mice activated the fiber with their gut microbiome and they released something called short chain fatty acids. The short chain fatty acids, which come from fiber, being, being processed by, by our gut microbes, in this case, left the gut Went to the lungs, and in the lungs, the short chain fatty acids were actually recruiting the proper cells, which in this case are the C D eight cells, recruiting the proper cells into the battle. And then amazingly, the rest of the immune system was actually turning it down. And so you're getting exactly these response that you're looking for, targeted and precise. And you get that because of the connection between fiber. And your gut microbiome. So when we think in the era of COVID-19 about, okay, so what do we do to optimize our immune system? You want to optimize your immune system, optimize your gut. And the book tells you exactly how to do that. And I don't say a lot about supplements in the book. Why? Because you can't take a C minus gut and turn it into an A by taking supplements by itself. You might be able to take a C minus and turn it into a C. And that's cool but that's nothing compared to what you can do with your diet and your lifestyle. Mm-hmm.
0: Wow, yeah, that's uh, that's just so amazing. And just even more kudos to fiber because you know I talk about fiber all the time, how important it is to eat a high fiber diet, but there's so many things I learned from your book that I didn't even know makes it even more powerful and more important. People ask me all the time as a pediatrician, you know, kids, they are always getting respiratory infections. (laughs) They Mm. go to daycare. So, you know, exposure is definitely a very important factor when it comes to getting sick. We're not saying here that people are never gonna get respiratory infections or get ill. But I think what Dr. B is saying is that if you're not eating a high fiber diet, if you're not eating a lot of whole plant foods, don't expect to just be able to take supplements and make your immune system function better that way. Really, we have to go to basics. We have to get a strong foundation and that comes from our diet and lifestyle with a high fiber diet from whole plant foods. So yeah, that's amazing. Well, now that we're talking about fiber, one of the things that I had no clue about was that there's actually, you said hundreds of types of fiber explain this how are there hundreds of types of fiber because i didn't know this and how how does this apply when it comes to your advice to patients um how do we get more types of fiber
2: okay so uh, let me start here i i know it's weird but i think fiber is sexy
0: (laughs) this is awesome it's the best interview ever
2: (laughs) I'm sorry, but I think it is. And what I want with this book is to give people the same glasses that I'm wearing so that when they look at fiber, they see sexy. What I want you to do is take the current image that you have of fiber, which is your grandma, stirring the 80, the orange drink and then drinking it so that she could poop. I want you to erase this from your memory, please. This is not meant to be the image of fiber that you remember forever. Okay. And I want you to know that fiber, let's get back to the basics. Fiber exists in all plants. And there are innumerable varieties of fiber. We honestly don't even have an estimate. Believe it or not, Dr. Yami, there may be, like, there may be millions. There may be billions. We honestly don't know. There is, there is tons of diversity of fiber. And for simplicity's sake, we have broken fiber into two main categories, soluble and insoluble. So you will see people refer to these two categories. That's literally just keeping it super simple. The word fiber is a wildly broad category. It's like using the word protein, Mm. right? There are so many different types of protein. There's protein in everything. And so the, the point from my perspective is that there is this this diversity and and variety of fiber that exists in the plant world. Each plant has its own unique types of fiber. And those unique types of fiber will feed different microbes in your gut. They have different dietary preferences just like each one of us, right? And so when you eat spinach versus when you eat black beans, You are feeding different microbes because they each have different types of fiber. We want diversity in our gut. Diversity is the key to a healthy gut. How do we get diversity? You get it by supporting as many different varieties and species of bacteria as you possibly can. And the path to doing that is by having diversity within your diet in terms of the plants. Diversity of plants is the solution. It is the solution to a healthy gut. And that's not just me being intuitive and laying out an argument. This is actually science. The biggest study to date to ask the question, what is the number one predictor of a healthy gut microbiome? This comes from the American Gut Project. The biggest study to date to allow us to answer this question, what is it that makes a healthy gut microbiome? There was one thing that came out of this study more powerful than the rest. The diversity of plants in your diet was the single greatest predictor of a healthy gut microbiome. And so from my perspective, we need to shift our thinking. And I don't care if you are 100% whole food, plant-based, no oil, and you're eating that diet, or you are someone who is at 10% and you're eating the standard American diet like I was a few years ago. Either way, it is so simple for us to introduce this into our routine Diversity of plants. I'll give you a quick example. Uh, uh, now, by the way, I would love to hear, like you know, about how you do dietary diversity in your household. I'm going to give you a quick example for us. We're, we're human. We eat normal meals like any other family. Sometimes we don't want to spend 30 minutes cooking, so sometimes it's it's you know pasta and tomato sauce. So we will get organic whole wheat pasta and we'll get our tomato sauce. That is two plants. But what we'll do is we'll jazz it up. Onions, garlic, mushrooms, sometimes some zucchini, and then hit it with the fresh herbs, basil, parsley, oregano, and like it was almost no effort and you just went with a dish from two two plants To where like so easily you are up to like seven, eight, nine different plants. And not only is it effortless, it is better for your gut and it's better for your taste buds. Tastes better. Mm -hmm. So it's a winning combination. If you guys have any dishes at home that you like to do, like
0: Yeah, I mean, definitely pasta is an easy one because you can load it up with all kinds of veggies and taco night, we try to do different things like that. What other kind of herbs and greens can we put in there? But that's actually a question I had for you is what does diversity mean? Because I feel like just like any family, you end up, you settle into your favorites, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, I have to say that one of my biggest, uh, I guess, sadnesses about this whole coronavirus thing is that everybody, I guess it's both a good thing and a bad thing. The beans are sold out at all the grocery stores. <laughs> so I'm hoping that all my families that don't eat beans have learned to make beans and they're all, all eating beans, but that makes it so that I'm having a hard time finding beans. But I will say I've realized that I kind of settle into my favorites. Like I love chickpeas. So I cook chickpeas almost every single week. I love brown rice. So I cook brown rice almost every single week. Yep. But so what does diversity mean and how much do we need to push ourselves out of our comfort zone? Like, do we need to be more deliberate about like, okay, I need to eat a different grain every day. Like, does it have to be day-to-day, meal-to-meal, or can it be more like month-to-month or seasonally? Like, what does diversity really mean to you?
2: Well, so at at the end of the day, what this this means to me is that your general diet is going to include more varieties of plants. And I don't put rigid rules in terms of, oh, well, month-to-month or seasonally or week-to-week. In the study, to be clear, in the American Gut Project study, they used a threshold of 30 plants. Okay. All right. So, but I also want people to understand that if you get into the statistics of the study, what you would realize is it's not necessarily that 30 is a magic number. They had to draw a line somewhere. So that's Mm -hmm. where they chose to draw the line. But you could, you would be even better with 35 Mm
1: -hmm.
2: or even better with 40 right? So there is no such thing as like this magic number. To me, this is a pervasive idea. Mm -hmm. This is a foundational idea for me from a dietary perspective. So, you know, when you get introduced to a plant-based diet or a vegan diet, you start thinking about, okay, I want to eat plants, right? And let's modify that sentence. I want to eat plants in variety. Mm. And if you bring that with you into the moments where you're dealing with food in your life. It becomes very easy to introduce this and not have it be an obligation or a list or a number. I'm very anti that actually. I'm very against the lists. I like simple. All right, here's one rule. This is the golden rule for plant-based gut health. This is the golden rule and it will continue to be 50 years from now because this is our biology. Eat a variety of plants. Mm -hmm. Done. Done. Mm -hmm. One rule. That's it. I'm out. (laughs) And so when you go into the supermarket, if you want to hear my voice, diversity of plants. Hopefully it's not too creepy. Diversity of plants. All right. You go to the supermarket, you're in the produce section. That might mean you pick out something that you haven't had before. That might be that instead of the brown rice this week, you can try some sorghum. Some of these other grains are so fun. Mm
1: -hmm. Really
2: cool. Faro. Um, it may be that you're making your chili and you know, you're going to be making your chili and it's going to be a crock pot thing. And you go, you know what? Normally I just get the kidney beans. This time I'm going to get the kidney beans, the black beans, and what the heck, I'll throw some chickpeas in there. All right. So you're thinking about it in the supermarket, you're thinking about it at the salad bar. For me, when I'm at the salad bar, it's so easy. If it's a plant, it's in there
1: mm-hmm. and it's
2: just a question of how much, right? And you do it to your taste or to what you're, what you're able to tolerate from a uh, gut perspective, and um, and when you know I'm at the dinner table and we have all these choices, to me it's diversity of plants. So if you make this a foundational idea, it's just so simple. Diversity of plants can deliver, and you know I don't worry about counting grams of fiber, and I don't keep a list of plants. You can do that, but I do with every meal think how can I jazz this up just a little bit more and get an extra one, two, or three plants
0: hmm But yeah, and I like how whenever you're talking about making a meal, you're thinking not just about the grains and the beans, but how can I also add herbs and spices because that counts too, right?
2: They're so good. They're so good. I mean, yes, they, they 100% count too. And what's beautiful about those foods, herbs and spices, is that the part of the, of the plant that tastes good Is also a phytochemical that heals
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: and that's something that's naturally embedded in our food you know plants have beautiful colors those beautiful colors are because of the phytochemicals that heal and when you think about the healing power of plants the medicinal nature of these foods that exists it's fiber it's the phytochemicals And then the other part that people don't realize is that the plant has a microbiome too. Mm. And there's actually probiotics that live on the plant and that may interact with your body too. And all of those things are there and powerful and designed to heal.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, and whenever you brought up the you know, the comment about the phytochemicals, it reminds me of how that's analogous to what you're talking about fiber is that there's so many different phytochemicals, so many different antioxidants. It's not just like one or two or a handful, there's so many. And so we can increase the diversity of those by eating a diversity of plants as well. So it kind of goes hand in hand.
2: That's it's such a simple perfect. approach and it works for plant protein, right? So um, people who criticize plant protein will say, oh, well, that protein's not complete.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, last time I checked, no one is eating just one plant all day long, right? Everyone is eating in diversity. And there was a study that just came out in the American Journal of Nutrition that showed that that's the key. Diversity of the plants is the key to having the appropriate protein in your diet. And plant protein, as I laid out in the book, in Fiber Fueled, is so much healthier for you anyway. Yeah. So, you know, so exactly right, whether it's phytochemicals or fiber or protein, the key is that when you consume a diversity, what you're getting is you're getting the strengths of every single one of those foods and you don't have to worry about the weaknesses because you're not overeating one thing, you're eating everything in a, in a balance and that's leading to better gut health, but honestly, that's leading to better health throughout the entire body.
0: Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's beautiful. And one of the things we've done recently, not just for environmental sustainability and to support local business, but also to push myself out of my comfort zone when it comes to including a diversity of plants is I subscribe to a local produce, produce box. So it's organic. And then they bring me, you know, things that are seasonal and there's some stuff in there that I'm like oh, I'm not sure how to cook it and it makes me a little bit uncomfortable cuz I have to look it up and be like okay how do what do I do with this but it is pushing us to try things that we don't usually try just because I'm used to it and it's easy and I know exactly what to do with it so I think that's another thing that people can try too if they need just like a little push is you know there's lots of different services now that even deliver nationwide that will uh, introduce you to plants that maybe you've never had before
2: I love that. And you know, it's interesting because there are literally, most people would never realize this. There are literally 300,000 edible plants mm. on the planet. 300,000. But our food supply, our food system has really whittled that down to the point that most people don't have access to even 50. Yeah. And so it's nice when you can find something new because. Gosh, isn't life about like exploration and trying new things and tickling Mm -hmm. the tongue and just kind of seeing what happens. And, you know, that's part of what I made sure that my recipe guide, which is the fiber fueled four weeks, over 70 recipes, you know, weekly shopping lists, the entire program, I mean, basically it is the program but I wanted to make sure that included a variety of flavors. So it's not just diversity of plants. It's, it's like you're taking a culinary tour around the world and trying all these beautiful flavors from Ethiopia and India and Thailand, and Vietnam, and, and they're all beautiful in their own way and, and can tickle the tongue because they're also different.
0: Yeah. And this is good for kids too. You know, this is what I talk about in my book and as a pediatrician is when it comes to children accepting foods, it really is about exposing them and being consistent with exposing them to a variety of foods. So that is how kids learn to accept new foods is repetition, consistency, repetition, consistency, just keep doing it. And so if they grow up in a family that this is the habit, We're going to eat a variety of plants. We're going to try new things. We're going to be open to it. They're more likely to accept that for their lifelong habit too. They're not going to be afraid to like try a new plant, try a different bean. You know, it's already going to be part of something that they do. But
2: do you have any tips to like how any tips for your house of how you get your kids to try new plants and to get that diversity? Like, Is there any little tricks that you have?
0: Well, there's lots of different things I've tried when they were smaller and I would take them to the store with me, I would have them pick something that they wanted to try. So pick a new fruit, pick a new vegetable. That's always fun because they're like, Ooh, this looks cool. I want to try this. And you know, sometimes they would like it and sometimes they wouldn't. Um, And so that worked a lot. Definitely having them involved, preparing, helping look for recipes. We talk about things, Uh, having them rate the meals that I make so that they feel like they have some control over it. But now that they're older and we have such a good relationship with meals and food in my family, they just trust me. I just yeah. cook and they eat it and it's fantastic and I love uh, it. It sounds great. I would <laughs> so. hang out
2: there too. I would hang out there too. No, I think, that's, I think that's amazing. And all those are great ideas. And sometimes what we do too is just trying to keep it fun, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, like, for example, my son, we know, loves to dip. Mm -hmm. So hummus and like a nice veggie crudite plate where like he's got all these choices. He loves that. And then the other thing that we'll do is sometimes we'll like um, use cookie cutters Mm -hmm. and apply those shapes. And so like my son has been really into this pumpkin shape recently and we'll do that with a sandwich or we'll do that with whatever. And um, it just kind of works really well in terms of getting him excited and making it more fun.
0: Oh, that's so cute. How old is he?
2: So my little man is three.
0: He's like the size of a
2: five-year-old. He's huge. Too many,
0: too many plants, (laughs) all that, those beads and fiber.
2: (laughs) Yeah, no, totally. It's like, it's hilarious how, you know, they're like, oh, you need, you need to drink milk to be tall. It's like, my son has been beyond a hundredth percentile for a while. He actually was at his third birthday, bigger than an average four-year-old.
0: Oh goodness.
2: And so, yeah. And he's never had milk. He don't drink any dairy at all. So, um, so that whole myth is ridiculous. And then I have a daughter who actually today is her birthday. She just turned six.
0: Aw.
2: And so, yeah, my sweet little girl. Um, so we're having a lot of fun, but my kids are pretty young.
0: Yeah. Well, what a gift to them to be able to grow up in a house where their parents know the power of food, because this sets them up for a lifetime Of health and well-being. And I love that. And I hope that more families see that. That it and it doesn't have to be all or nothing. So like you said, start where you are, add more plants. But let me go back real quick to this diversity thing, because like we talked about at the beginning of our conversation, there even in the plant-based world, are people that are afraid of uh, certain macronutrients, one of them being carbs. That is the the one right now that has the most fear, I think, is carbs. So definitely, even for people that are plant-based, they try to reduce, you know, don't eat grains. And now there's even a movement for more people to try vegan keto. So I would like to know, what your thoughts are on vegan keto and could that have potential effects on our gut health?
2: So I, I love the idea of people who are motivated and willing to make dietary changes in the interest of their health. I celebrate those people, period. I, I regret that what they have been told as options are oftentimes actually not that good for them, all right? So, and I'm referring to traditional vegan, like a traditional keto or, or, you know, to me, the paleo diet is yes, better than the standard American diet. It could be so much better. It could be so much better. So with regard to vegan keto, it's trendy. I don't really see where there's the tremendous advantage to a vegan keto as opposed to a very balanced, diverse plant-based diet. I don't see the advantage to that. You're making most of your diet out of dietary fat. Dietary fat is clearly going to have some effects in terms of your insulin resistance. And we don't have studies to say that this is in your, the best interest of your gut microbiome. You can't do a vegan keto diet without being at least partially restrictive in, in your approach. Mm-hmm and overemphasizing the fat-based food products. So what I would say about it is this, if this is something that invites people into consuming a plant-based diet, and then they realize that this is number one, probably not that good for them long-term, or number two, that it's not really sustainable, and therefore they decide to move more towards a diet that is about abundance and variety, and eating plant-based food, but without restriction, I think that, in that setting, it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. But what I fear, what I fear, is that there are trends within the vegan movement that are restrictive vegan diets, and that includes plant-based keto, and that includes fruit only or raw only. There are these restrictive versions of veganism, and I don't think that those are actually the healthiest diet. Mm-hmm. So, and I I feel like when people follow these paths where it's like, I'm gonna do a restricted vegan keto or I'm gonna do a restricted paleo keto, no beans, no legumes, uh, no um, whole grains. I feel like they're setting themselves up for failure. And unfortunately, many times what you see is because these are trends and not necessarily scientifically validated approaches, what you see is that this is being done by like influencers on social media and then they don't feel well and then they bail on veganism altogether and say it's the carbs that are the problem
1: mm-hmm.
2: the carbs are not the problem the carbs are actually the solution and the book you know fiber fuel is my book it lays out why that is the case and when you restrict yourself of you know an entire macronutrient you're actually causing harm to your body yeah so i i feel like some of these ideas are misguided and some of them are that we're just trying to hop on the hype train and get people moving in this direction. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: I get it, but how are we going to get people here and also give them the tools necessary to thrive? Because I truly believe that people will thrive on a plant-based diet.
1: Yeah,
2: And I don't care whether you are 70, 80, 90, 100%. For me, 100%, I feel like I reversed aging. But at the end of the day, I just want to take people and move them in this direction, and let's all get there together. And then Mm -hmm. I really, truly believe that, that people are going to find that they feel so much better, they're going to want to keep going.
0: Yeah. And with people that start some of these restrictive diets, just like we talked about at the beginning of the conversation, can it take them a little bit longer to get back to their diversity, especially if they've been doing it for a while, if they've eliminated some of these foods, especially the beans and the grains, then they try and reintroducing them and they're like, Oh, I told you, I can't eat that. I'm instantly yeah, bloated. Yeah, so can, should they expect, just like you said, this book is really for these people that are, might have a harder time. Should they expect that when they start to reintroduce these foods again, that it's going to take them a little bit longer to readapt to them?
2: I want people to think about the gut like it's a muscle. So what that means is number one, it can be trained. Number two, it can get stronger. Number three, if you don't use it, you lose it. Number four, in the process of training your gut, it is gonna require some work. And it won't necessarily always be easy.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And number five, if you do way more than your body is capable of handling all at once, you're going to hurt yourself, Mm
1: -hmm. right?
2: If I go in the gym and triple up my normal amount of weight and try to lift that, I'm actually going to hurt myself, right? The same is true with your gut. If you take legumes or grains out, if you don't use it, you lose it. Your gut is getting weaker with regard to your ability to process legumes Mm -hmm. and grains. But if you can meet your gut where it is, it's like rehab, all right? If my arm is in a cast for six months, I'm going to take that cast off, and I'm going to have the scrawny arm. Mm
1: -hmm. And it's
2: not going to be capable of lifting the normal amount of weight that I'm used to lifting when I go to the gym. But if I have the patience and I understand the path, I can go to the gym and I can start off with an appropriate amount of weight, which may be 2.5 pounds. And I can lift that weight and next week I'll come back and do five. And then the week after that, I might be up to 10. And you build your strength back up. It can be retrained and it can be fortified and strengthened to get your gut back to where it used to be. But you have to understand that you have to go low. You have to go slow. You have to allow your gut like a muscle to build up strength over the course of time. And you need to recognize that just like training in the gym, there's some days that you're sore. And you got to embrace that and say, this is part of the process of building up and strengthening my gut. Instead of looking at it like, oh my gosh, I can't tolerate this. I need to bail and not do this anymore. Yeah. Again, when you bail, your gut gets weaker.
0: Yeah. Oh no, that's I, I love that analogy. I've never heard anybody say it that way, but it, it makes perfect sense to me because I feel like that happens so much People have been eliminating stuff, eliminating all these things. They try to reintroduce it; it goes bad, and they're like, "I told you." And then they stop, and right. the problem just perpetuates itself. So that's perfect. And in that's your the book, person obviously, off a keto
2: diet. I mean, yeah, that's the, person, that's the person coming off a keto diet, where basically it's like they they improve their blood sugar artificially by eliminating carbs, which is conceptually similar to having a bum knee and saying, I'm not gonna walk, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So they eliminate the carbs, their blood sugar artificially improve, improves, and then they reintroduce carbs and their blood sugar spikes. And the reason why it spikes is because actually they made their insulin resistance worse
1: mm-hmm. in the
2: process of doing the ketogenic diet is of all the fat. So, you know, to me, I want people to understand it's the result of the diet that puts you in this position we have a process to work through to get you there. And that's what the book is about.
0: I love it. All right. Really briefly, because I'm like pushing it here, but you're just so good. Okay. Can you tell us briefly the difference between prebiotics, probiotics, and postbiotics, and who benefits from supplementing prebiotics?
2: All right. Prebiotics, probiotics, and postbiotics. It's an entire chapter in the book. <laughs> so, um,
0: One sentence, I'm just joking. <laughs> all right.
2: Prebiotics are food for the microbes. Probiotics are the living microbes. When you take a probiotic, it's in a capsule, but inside of us, we have probiotics. They're already mm-hmm. there. Postbiotics are what happens, what is produced by these microbes when you feed them the prebiotics. Mm -hmm. You can't produce the postbiotics, which by the way, are the healthy part. Like at the end of the day, this is literally all, people don't realize, it's not about probiotics. It's not about prebiotics, it's about postbiotics. Mm -hmm. That's what it is all about. It is about what the bacteria actually produce that heals our body. And you can't produce the postbiotics if you don't have the prebiotics. You could have all of the probiotics in the world. You could have all of the bacteria in the world. But if you don't feed them with the right fiber, then they can't make the postbiotics. You got to give them the goods to actually make it for you.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So the prebiotic supplement, who benefits? If you come to see me in my clinic, I'm going to tell you right now, there is almost a 100% chance that I'm going to recommend prebiotics. All right. And I'm a huge believer I actually don't take a probiotic myself, just to put that into perspective. I'm happy to elaborate on that if you want me to, but I don't take a probiotic. I actually take multiple prebiotics and I do it every day. And I eat a 100% whole food plant based diet. And the reason why I do this is because I have my diet, I have my diversity, but I also am targeting my gut microbiome with the prebiotics. And I have noticed a difference, not to be too graphic but knows the difference in my bowel movements. It is what it is.
0: <laughs> I love it. No, and I love how in your book, you talk about these blissful bowel movements. I love it. I mean, it's just really, especially for me, I suffered from constipation for over 30 years of my life. So um, I know what a blissful bowel movement is and I love it. <laughs> so that's great. Okay, well, thank you. I know that I I pushed you to simplify that a little bit. And for listeners that want more detail on the prebiotics and all, because you talk about a lot of different prebiotics in your book. So definitely go and get a copy of Fiber Fueled if you're interested in learning more about that. But basically what you're saying is that pretty much everybody can benefit from taking a prebiotic.
2: I honestly believe that.
0: Awesome. Okay. Well, we are winding down here. I have so many more questions, so it's it's too bad. I can't interview you for days, but I want to know what you wish more people knew.
2: I wish that people knew the incredible power of short-chain fatty acids. We touched on them earlier in the interview when we were talking about the viral infection and trying to optimize the immune system. They optimize our immune system. They lower our cholesterol. They reverse diabetes. They actually are the thing that makes us feel full when we eat a meal. That way we don't overeat. So they contribute to having a healthy weight. They actually prevent cancer like directly. They are able to prevent cancer. They're good for our heart. They're good for our brain. They cross the blood-brain barrier. The bottom line is that I think that we should stop wasting our time talking about the supposed villains of nutrition like lectins and phytates and gluten. Stop wasting our time fixating on those and let's fixate on getting more of the good stuff. And that is short chain fatty acids, which we get from fiber.
0: And these short chain fatty acids, that's one of the postbiotics, correct?
2: They're one of the postbiotics, Yep, and you get them from fiber, and there's literally an entire chapter in the book where I talk about not only do they heal the gut, you want to reverse the leaky gut, this is the solution short chain fatty acids. You want to reverse leaky gut, this is the solution, but it goes beyond the gut. They spread throughout the entire body. They get into the bloodstream. They go all the way up to the brain, and they can contribute to brain health, to heart health, to metabolic health, to immune health, hormonal health, all the way down the line.
0: So fascinating and so incredible. Well, what personal habit are you most proud of? How did you develop it and how do you maintain it?
2: Oh, wow. Um, Gosh. So I I have to say, I mean, I guess we led the show and we're coming full circle here. I am most proud of the dietary changes that I made. Because for me, that was not a small feat. Mm I was used to eating a certain way. I had never even been exposed to this. And to discover this and follow that piece of string and end up in a place where I lose 50 pounds and feel like you know 10 years younger, even though I've aged 10 years, and bring it into my clinic. And then to strangely be here on this call with you as an advocate for plant-based gut health is incredible. And I'm a, I'm a big planner. Like I always have a five-year plan and think I know what's going to happen. This was not the plan. (laughs) So, and here I am. So I think I'm most proud of that because it changed my life on so many levels. And I'm passionate about trying to share this message with people because I think it can transform their life too.
0: I love it. Well, I'm so glad and I want to thank your wife. So thank you to your wife for being the inspiration that gave you the curiosity to try it, which has led to such a big component of your career and a book. I mean, that's incredible. That is so amazing. So congratulations on that. Well, Dr. B, how can listeners connect with you? And can you tell us about what services you provide?
2: Um, So if you want to connect with me, come, I invite you, come hang out with me on Instagram. My account is theguthealthmd. I I have a website. It's called theplantfedgut.com. If you go there, you will find my COVID-19 resource kit. You will also find my um, uh, science of fiber fuels. Essentially, it's the science manifesto. I believe in transparency of references. You will get every single reference from my book. You also get an introduction to research. I want people to have some of the tools to kind of understand the thought process behind how I came to finding these 600 references. So all of that is on my website. Um, I have a community with me, the Plant Fed Posse. And so you can sign up for my email list. You'll get all that information.
0: Awesome. What and do then, I do?
2: sorry. Uh, oh, no, gonna I was
0: going to say, right. where do you practice and do you have space for more patients in your clinic?
2: So I'm in, I'm in a traditional gastroenterology practice in, in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, I would love to create the way for me to connect with people one on one in the future. And I'm looking at ways to potentially do that. But in the interim, beyond the book, if you feel compelled to continue to connect with me, I have a course that I'm building. And the course is going to be launching this summer. It's really meant to be for my own patients. It's like, I wish that I had hours to sit down and have coffee with my with my patients and have these long conversations and break it all down and teach them everything they need to know. That's what this course is. And we're currently in the second version of beta testing it. And I've been like absolutely blown away by the results that we're getting from the people who are enrolled in the course. So if you want that next level, that's where... To start right now, and then perhaps in the future, I will be able to do more one on one type stuff, but that's something I'm working out.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much. Okay. Before we say goodbye, a tearful goodbye, (laughs) can you please provide us with one call to action for the week? What can my listeners do this week to improve their lives?
2: If you do this and you make this your core philosophy, you can radically transform your health. And this could be you as a vegan, whole food plant-based, it could be paleo, it could be anything. It could be the standard American diet. There's one golden rule that transforms your gut and it transforms your health. And that is so simple, diversity of plants. If you make that your foundational principle and you apply it to your life, you will radically transform your health and it doesn't have to be that complicated. It can be this simple.
0: All right. Dr. B. Dr. B has told you increase the diversity of plants that you eat. I love it. So simple. So incredibly important. Well, this has been fantastic and I really hope that I can have you back on again. I don't know if someday you're going to be like so famous that you're not going to have time to be on my podcast, but I would love to invite you back because I literally have still another page of questions. (laughs) So thank you. you Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you appreciate everything that you're doing um, to help other people feel better, live longer and have the life that they desire. So I really appreciate you.
2: I appreciate you, Dr. Yami. Thank you so much for having me on. I love everything that you're doing. I love what you stand for. And it's my honor to be on your show. And I would be honored to come back on the show if you invite me back. So thank you so much.
0: Awesome. And I already know that you will, but I'm gonna tell you anyway, to have a very fantastic day. Ugly, I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for tuning in, and I look forward to having you back again next week. A very special thank you to the band Rocket Surgeons for permission to use the broccoli song. To find out more about the Rocket Surgeons, please visit their website at rocketsurgeonsband.com or Facebook at Rocket Surgeons Music. Please subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Also, all of my social media links can be found in the podcast description. Send me a message and let me know what you think of today's podcast. Sharing is caring. Please share, rate, and review my podcast and drop me a line if you have ideas for future episodes. Thank you once again and have a plantastic day.